Hello and welcome to the Good Work Podcast. I'm Felicity Holstead, your host and the founder of Good Work. On the Good Work Podcast, we're talking about all things talent, skills and early careers. Over the next 10 weeks, I'll be talking to founders, people leaders, psychologists, education experts and many more brilliant people about the future of work for the next generation. On today's podcast, I'm talking to Dale Graham. Dale is Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at global health innovation company, Real Chemistry. He is also on the board of Good Work, helping us shape our strategy and build programs to transform early careers. Dale Graham, welcome to the Good Work podcast. Hello, Felicity. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So, Dale, as we know, you are a member of the Good Work board. It would be amazing if you could start by telling us a little bit more about what else you do and your career so far. Yes. So I am currently Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion for a global health communications company called Real Chemistry. Real Chemistry work with their clients to engage healthcare practitioners and patients to help deliver more health or better health equity and and more equitable outcomes for people by being more inclusive in comms and understanding how best to engage people on healthcare issues. My role is very much internally focused. So I report into our chief people officer and my team, my diversity, equity, inclusion team work primarily to deliver equity interventions. So career accelerators, internship programs, and working with our business resource groups to support cultural awareness and cultural inclusion in the business, as well as collaborating with our other HR colleagues to help improve our recruitment, help to improve performance management and learning and development to help create a more inclusive workplace. So I want to come back to some of the other things that you've mentioned, but one thing I picked up on is the word equity. I've seen an increasing number of people in the in the people space use the word equity rather than equality in recent, I would say, months rather than years. Can you explain a little bit more about what equity is and why equity can be a better goal than equality? Yes. So I, Brain of Dale Graham says equality should always be the goal. The reality is we don't live in as meritocratic and equal societies as as we probably ought to. And so equity is, I like to think of it as a means to achieve equality. A friend of mine who is in the Royal Navy described this to me recently in a really good way because I'm football oriented and and things related to football stick in my brain better. He said equity is walking up to a foosball table and noticing that one side is slanted down and whoever's trying to play football uphill is obviously going to struggle. Equity is just making that table level. It's sticking a few beer mats underneath the legs to make sure that everyone is playing on a similar playing field. And so when it comes to DEI, lots of the work we do, or that I do and other DEI practitioners do, involves finding where there are inequities, where other people and organizations who have have it harder, don't have as equal access to opportunity as we would like, and how do we build intervention to, to level the playing field for them? And then in the kind of the broader, more strategic long-term sense, how do we remove the need for those equitable interventions and how do we make sure our, our organisations are equal? Yeah. How did you end up working in DEI? Was that your goal growing up or is it something that's kind of happened more gradually? No, my, my goal growing up was super vague. My only career goals I remember from from a young age were that I should wear a, a shirt and tie. And my dad worked in, in retail and my granddad was a pastor. 
he came over mm-hmm. from Jamaica and was a pastor in his spare time and would always wear his Sunday best every day. Just to note, because obviously we're in an audio format right now, Dale is not wearing a season tie. So. <laughs> yes, very much. Yeah, my, I guess how I've conceptualized career success has changed away from the attire. Um, yeah. over but for a long time, I just thought going to work meant wearing like a shirt and tie and just looking smart. And over the years, that that's kind of kind of molded and formed. And as I read more and I very, very, very gradually learned more about what was out there in the world and things I enjoyed doing, it kind of, it, it morphed. I started out as a project manager, an engineering project manager for a, a defense business, building capabilities for the armed forces. And from there, I got interested in product development, product strategy, and then I moved into corporate strategy for that business. Then I, I found myself exposed to innovation in the world of technology innovation and, and how startups collaborate with big organizations to connect really impressive technological solutions to real world challenges. And then I moved into a management consultancy uh, along that journey. I think I look back now and the threads that pull that together was or were that from my first career experience, I was building cognitively diverse teams. I was working on how we get the materials engineer to speak up in front of the mechanical engineer yeah. because if we don't do that. We end up with months worth of rework because someone didn't feel safe sharing a challenge they had. And over time, I learned more about the overlap between demographic diversity and cognitive diversity and how those can be really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and throughout that journey, I was always working in sectors where I was an underrepresented minority, either from having come from a relatively poor background in the sectors I was working in or by being a mixed race black person. And so I eventually kind of got to the point where I was able to align those different sets of career experiences around something that I, I wanted to do all the time which was helping yeah. to create organizations or helping to finish building organizations that aren't inherently inclusive of people and don't necessarily always appreciate the value that diversity inclusion has kind of ethically and morally, but also to help make organizations more effective. And I think it can be hard to stay away from that sort of work. And that's how we came across each other, right? Was working in a kind of defense related consultancy space and, for for you and for me we were both kind of underrepresented people in that environment and it is really hard I think as we 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 both found to not get involved in addressing those inequities when you come across them which is also super frustrating right because why should it be those who aren't represented who end up picking up that baton but that is the lifelong struggle of people who work in this space right it can be and it is you know, we all we all walk through life with our perspective blindness, as it were, and businesses for a long time were full of a particular perspective. Um, Absolutely. And sometimes it, it takes people trying to make the way in the space to help open the eyes of the other folk, and or at least uh, improve the awareness that there's value to be had in including other perspectives. And um, it can be a really tiring role. It can mm-hmm. be quite exhausting, and particularly where you're. You know, if you're campaigning for digital transformation, I mean, it's hard work, but it doesn't relate yeah. to the core of your identity. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, it can be challenging and it requires a lot of a lot of resilience, but it's really rewarding work. Yeah, absolutely. And so from the perspective of a DNI professional, where does social mobility fit in to that work? So social mobility, I think it speaks to a number of things. So Firstly, it's 
whilst it's not recognized as or kind of being from a different socioeconomic class isn't recognized in the UK as a protected characteristic. Yeah. It does speak to an experience that the world and then the world of business, generally speaking, uh, should, I, I would argue, treat as a protected characteristic uh, insofar as it, particularly in the UK, can be a really fundamental part of your identity. And it can really shape how you view the world and experience the world from, from the youngest of ages and the most influential of ages through into your adulthood. The other way that, that I think socioeconomic mobility relates to diversity and inclusion is underrepresented groups tend to be uh, within the lower socioeconomic strata of society as a result of us not living in a wholly meritocratic society and various different biases and disadvantages kind of layered in, in different dynamics through different components of our societies. And so focusing on socioeconomic mobility can be a really powerful way of unpicking the challenges facing various different underrepresented groups and delivering kind of a, a rising tide of impact for a group of different people, which isn't to say that that there are idiosyncrasies that we need to address that particular groups face. Of course, there are. Notwithstanding, social mobility is a, is a really is a really powerful way to, to improve outcomes for diverse people. And what has your own experience been with social mobility and entering a corporate environment as part of that workforce as somebody who comes from a socioeconomically less advantaged background? It's really complicated. So I was thinking about this in advance of speaking to you and it's, it manifests in so many different ways. Probably the most common one is, is the imposter syndrome, right? The first time I, I left Northwest London and I went off to a university I had a little panic attack before every exam I would go to um, because I was worried I would get to like the board where they tell you where your seat is and my name wouldn't be there. They'd have found out that I wasn't supposed to have been at the university and they would have, in fact, they'd have just knocked me off the roster for the exams and I'd have to go home. And that, that followed me for a good few years into kind of the corporate environment where anytime I got feedback or anytime I was expected to be somewhere where there'd be a register, all these dynamics played into kind of a general feeling of, of not not belonging um, yeah. which which you know in fairness to the people around me who weren't from a similar background they weren't to know how to be inclusive of that kind of experience I think the other ways it, it manifested in my career is is a lack of awareness of career options until I was kind of like purely by happenstance walking into them or finding them in fact now I mention it I remember I'm not sure if you ever did these I did a, a, like a career survey or like a job survey when oh, I was at primary yes. school. Did you ever do those? I didn't do it at primary school. I did it at secondary school and I cannot for the life of me remember what it said I should do. Well, mine was hilarious. I remember, or maybe it was secondary school, but there were two options, butcher or a fishmonger. So I filled out this questionnaire and I, you know, I, I put my all into this questionnaire, hoping to divine some inspiration as to what my future might look like. And I'm not a particularly practical person. My granddad always used to tell me I should get a trade. But to this day, building flatback furniture is about as far as my practical skills go. So I had very little awareness growing up as to what what careers could look like. I'd read the odd John Grisham book until I knew lawyers were a thing. Yeah. But I had no idea management consultants was a thing until I got to it. I didn't really know you could make a career out of being a project manager. Well, let's be honest. We've both been management consultants. No, no child. <laughs> wakes up in the morning and thinks when I grow up I want to be a management consultant <laughs> much as I thought when I said to you have you always wanted to work in DEI? I don't think anyone grows up thinking I want to work in DEI. but I do think 
people can grow up thinking I want to make the world a fairer place or I want to improve people's experiences and that can then manifest into working in an area like DE&I. I think I think so I'm not sure if this is a function of social mobility but it took me a really really long time to understand that I can impact the environment around me that I could but just by the nature of me wanting to do something, I could shape a business to looking different or having different process. Yeah. And that wasn't something my parents ever did in their jobs, not when I was growing up anyway. And so having that that level of awareness of agency you can have, I think is something that if isn't taught to you, can take a long time to learn that you can do. Yeah. And I think as well, it's something that I always really want to convey to young people is you also don't have to be responsible for it, right? Like you don't have to take on that burden of shaping the environment around you if it doesn't already serve you. And I can definitely remember there being times in my own career where I've thought I could give my career to trying to make this specific environment better for Mm. people like me or people who are underrepresented or marginalised. But I don't have to because it's going to take a lot out of me to do that. And sometimes walking away can be as powerful or walking away and deciding that actually I'm going to try and create that sort of change elsewhere and take those lessons that I've learned. I think there's a kind of institutionalization that you have to like unlearn, I think in your twenties, because you go through this experience of like, I go to primary school, I go to secondary school, I go to university, I go into a job and it's like, oh, I can leave, right? Like, oh, I don't have to stay here forever. I can go and do something else. That's certainly been some of my experience. I think you're right. As we said before, this stuff relates to your identity and that like your, your general Cassandra effect is a real challenge, mm-hmm. right? Constantly telling people to do things and they don't do it. It can take a toll on your on your psyche. But when those things relate to your access to opportunity and then people like you, it's a really tough thing to feel a, a sense of obligation to fix yeah I didn't go to a school where everyone went to university and getting to that into that level of institutionalization has become something you feel grateful for and so you're even less likely to challenge or to break out because you don't seem ungrateful you yeah to push the boundaries too far is there anything particular that we're doing within good work that really speaks to the sorts of challenges that you've come across in a working environment so firstly I think from my personal experience I was quite fortunate I think in that I I liked to read my parents were quite religious growing up and so I I had quite strict upbringing albeit in a context where a lot of people didn't necessarily and so through more luck than judgment I was able to find my way through life but it was more luck than judgment there were any Mm -hmm. number of people that I went to school with who were more or less academically inclined I went to school with people who should have been this isn't a good work value proposition but (laughs) could have been a GB Olympic team but yeah as a sheer function of not having the or being exposed to certain influences or not being of the right mindset at exactly the right time probably didn't feel as much of their potential as they might have liked to yeah. And I really like that the work good work is doing helps to remove some of that random element of luck from people's from people's upbringing. You might not necessarily be academically inclined by the time you get to 16 or 17 and that might impact whether you go to university or not. Actually that shouldn't matter. Yeah. But actually we have created a society in which there is structural disadvantage and 
it's important that we don't kind of put it down to that element of, you know, oh, well, they were lucky. Actually, somebody really worked incredibly hard to defy a lot of odds and had some luck along the way. But that's not to suggest that the people who didn't are in any way less able or less deserving of support and intervention. And I think it's really important that we kind of call that out where we can. I agree. People always look at individuals from certain groups who kind of make it to the top as as the example that, well, anyone can. Lewis Hamilton did or or any number of other different people. Margaret Thatcher, right? It's a Thatcherite point though, right? It's that idea of you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Not everybody can. And that's actually no reflection on them as an individual. No, as you say, kind of the structures of the education system and the expectations of a workplace. Yeah. Our businesses have a very fixed view of what success can look like uh, and what it should look like. And anything that veers out of that is kind of brain can't compute. Um, yeah, I really like that good work is it's not just doing the work on the ground to help young people who might have had, you know, the exact right alignment of experience and opportunity, but also working with organizations, help them understand that thinking differently in, in how they approach recruitment is something they should all be doing. We kind of go through world in our bubbles and our existences. My parents were foster carers when I was growing up. We had something like 80 to 90 different babies and young people. Wow. And just that exposure to like the various different challenges people have to live with day to day and then the kids grow up with isn't something that your average non-executive director of a Fortune 500 company ever really thinks about and has any exposure to. And so mm-hmm. not to make excuses for people, but I think if you don't know and no one's taken the time to tell you, I mean, arguably... You could have looked, but it kind of doesn't matter. The yeah. kind of there and, and companies like or businesses and initiatives like Good Work who are just shining a light and finding a way to, to make things better. Absolutely. And it's a conversation that's actually going to come up on the podcast in the next few weeks. But I had a conversation with Sam Hornsby, who founded the Eric app, which is about career education, particularly supporting young people to access opportunities in the creative industries. One of the points that Sam makes is that actually career education is really, really flawed. We grow up with these ideas of you can be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, or you can work in a trade or in retail. We need to make sure that young people are aware, not only of the existence of all these different types of jobs, but actually that they are really accessible because at the same time, you're seeing lots and lots of industries really struggling to access entry-level talent that they need because in many cases, those young people don't know that they exist. And Eric is just one example of a lot of good work that's being done in that space. One of the challenges that we're trying to address is making sure that actually young people that we work with are made aware of and have the option to get involved in really different types of careers. And that idea that there is no one route to success, you know, it's not about you've got to go to university and then get a corporate job. There's lots of different things. And that's why one of our targets is is working with startups. One of the things that springs to mind as I talk about that, though, is how do we make the case for that investment in entry level talent? The competition for talent at the moment is is acute. And the pace of change in our organizations and the pace of change in our job profiles is mm-hmm. phenomenal. It's the 85% of jobs in 2030 haven't been invented yet model, right? How do, you, yeah. how do you possibly recruit for those things now with a very fixed view of what good looks like? 
think focusing entry-level talent, not on how do you become the prototypical lawyer, stroke management on or whatever, to how do we how do we understand and really conceptualize what talent looks like and how do we bring that on board in a way that allows it to grow and shape and, and adjust to the trends and forces in our industries. Engagement has been the hot word and a buzzword in the HR profession for a really long time. And the more you invest in people at a young age, the more likely they are to be loyal and to, to want to stay in your organizations. And you know, there's a whole other debate on, on whether organizations are ever as loyal to their people as the people are to the organizations. But no, is the answer to that. It's not a debate. The answer is no. <laughs> in a very pound and pence way, you can, you can measure the impact of engagement. And if you put the effort into to creating opportunities for people who might have had them, they buy into the values of what you do as an organization. Yeah. And, you it's, save money in other kinds of people management and attraction and recruitment. It's such a good point. And I don't think we should ever be averse to the idea that, you know, inevitably people are always going to leave an organization. There is always going to be attrition to mm. some extent. But actually, I think this this almost kind of like defeatism at the moment of this kind of view of, well, young people these days have portfolio careers. They change jobs every few years. And actually, that doesn't mean that if you invest in making your workplace a better place to be. And by that, I do not mean pizza parties and free yoga. I mean, fair pay, progression opportunities, decent benefits, and a culture that doesn't cause systemic mental health problems. There is every chance that then people will stay. And that actually, maybe it's more a reflection of the fact that we expect more from our careers. And we have, as a generation, a better sense of what perhaps work-life balance should look like. And I think a huge lot of that has been sped up by the impacts of covid and the massive shift in work-life balance that we've all seen over the last few years but i don't think it's a reason to not invest in improving your culture for example and and it's not it's not even nearly the only reason right the the more you invest in people the more engaged they become the more engaged they become not only they less likely to leave but they're more productive yeah the more the broader the, the diversity in your workforce the more creative it is, the more ideas it generates, the more likely yeah. it is to relate to your clients or your customers because your workforce then has a broader sense of perspective awareness. If there are any numbers of different reasons as to why this is a good thing. The challenges that good work is trying to unpick and one of the many challenges is it's different and different takes time to think about and different takes time to work through the system. And the outcomes and the benefits are there in terms of diversifying early careers and early recruitment. Yeah. But the friction is there as well because it's different from how we currently operate absolutely and I think sometimes we forget that the rules are made up like we all just kind of made up how things should work and there's actually no reason why just because something is different that we shouldn't do it but as you say it's a long and challenging journey and actually the future of work looks different to anything we've ever experienced before and that that is scary to a lot of people and I think moving kind of slightly on from that something that we are painfully aware of at the moment is economic turmoil in inverted commas who knows what the next few months are going to look like and certainly being somebody who is trying to start a business in the midst of that doesn't always feel super comfortable but I would argue and the argument that I'm making to our clients is that there is no reason to stop investing in making work a fairer and more inclusive place through that. As a DNI professional, what is your take on that? People often talk about the two cases for diversity and inclusion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of the, the deontological, moral, 
we ought to do this because it's the right thing to do regardless of the outcome piece. Yeah. Dale, but- what does deontological mean? <laughs> deontology is a particular form of moral philosophy and it's the one that specifically says you have an obligation to do something because regardless of the outcome it's the right thing to do like okay. we should we should all hold doors open for people who may be less able to open the door themselves not because yeah. it's important where they're going but because it's just the right thing to do right and in a similar kind of sense sending the elevator back down or doing what we do to create a more inclusive workspace it's yeah. just a thing to do because we work in organizations that profess to be equal opportunities employers and profess to be meritocratic and in that context why shouldn't mm-hmm. we do everything we can to, to create a, an equitable environment for people but notwithstanding that in a context of disruption what's the expression volatile uncertain or complex situations and dynamics having workforces that are more diverse having workforces where that diversity can be effective makes you more resilient as an organization because you're more yeah. likely to be effective. It's the old Kodak didn't innovate approach, right? If everyone who was facing an economic downturn did nothing, we'd have no businesses left. And yeah. um, I genuinely believe that the type of work that Good Work is doing and the, and the DNI professionals out there who are worth their salt and then know what they're talking about, they understand that that diverse and included workforces is the next competitive advantage in the workplace. It's how you make the most of your quote-unquote human capital yeah. um, and that that's how business will survive absolutely and it it always strikes me too and one of the things that we are aiming to do is actually to unlock more economic potential what we're trying to do is enable more high potential young people to access opportunities that will be paid more, that will allow them to ultimately earn more money and therefore spend more money over the course of their lifetimes. It's the same as the argument, for example, for universal free childcare, which is, you know, one of the, that's the next thing I'm going to tackle, is, is that actually if you create jobs, you create opportunities and you bolster the amount of money that we have circulating around. 100%. And it extends beyond kind of the economic sphere into kind of the broader mm-hmm elements of of economic externalities if a percentage of your population are right down low on maslow's hierarchy of needs and unable to like beyond just how do i feed my family yeah don't have time or capacity to deal with am i doing my bit for the environment am i doing my bit for the charities and and social social value and actually the more you raise that tide the more impact it has on, on so many other aspects of society yeah. What are your core principles of DNI work that actually you would say this is a really good place to start? And these are some really fundamental things that you can implement as an organization to support these improvements to your culture and your people strategy. Hmm. Yes. So I would start with none of it's easy. There are, I think, two big buckets of effort I would start with. One is strategic alignment there is very little gain to be had by trying to get people who are incentivized in very different ways within your organization to be diverse and inclusive and it's like having one part of your organization that's focused on sales maximization and another one that's yeah. focused on profit maximization like that's yeah. not good strategic alignment and it's exactly the same from a dni perspective part of your business is focused on in-year profit and that's what's driving their behaviors and You've got a DNI team and a group of business resource group leads and, and DNI enthusiasts saying we should really be more inclusive. Yeah. That doesn't work. People will invariably, for the most part, follow the, the, the strategic 
motivations of the business. And the other thing I, I would focus on, and it's it, another reason this is difficult, is it's it's always additional. It's always more effort for someone, but it's worth it in the end. Is think about how diversity inclusion can relate to your employee life cycle. Any time yeah. a person in your business interacts with the organization is an opportunity for implicit bias. It's an opportunity for any number of inequitable, albeit potentially unintentional forces mm-hmm. to come into play. Um, and that's everywhere from your recruitment to your learning and development, to your promotions, your talent management. If you were to break down the various different processes that a generalist HR business partner supports yeah. the organization with, or a hiring manager or a line manager, thinking about how you can make those touch points for people more inclusive and then just prioritizing the ones that, that you can get on with in the short term and, and delivering impact over the long term, I think. Yeah. And it's a frustration, right? Because the business case for DEI is one of my least favorite expressions because <laughs> it, as you say, it prioritizes the commercial outputs over the actual focus on what feels like the right thing to do but equally it's the reality of working in the space in so many ways because actually it has to be strategically embedded in the minds of what everyone gets up and goes to do on a daily basis and you're absolutely right if it's something additional if it's something you talk about at a town hall once every three months and then broadly forget about in the intervening period you know, that is a classic way for an organization to fail to live its values. And that is a frequent thing. I can remember when I first started talking to you about the concept for good work. I think I said good work's not going to have values because I think organizational values are stupid because nobody lives them. And I can remember you laughing at me then as you as you are now. I have since revised that view, not because I think that organizations by and large are good at living their values, but because I don't think that's a reason to abandon the concept altogether. However, that came from an inherent frustration that I had. But in terms of getting organizations to lift their values, what would your strategy be for that? If you're working with an organization or you're going to work in a new place and you look at this set of things painted on a wall near the tea station and think, well, how is this lived out by the people around us? What would you do to support an organization to kind of actually start to make some progress on that? So I think it's really important. I tend to think values are important. I agree. A lot of companies and organizations pay lip service to them, and that's where they become functionally useless. But quote unquote, operationalizing a set of values in a business, so making them real. And so from an inclusion and diversity perspective, some of the the best things you can do if you have a value that relates to being more inclusive or Mm -hmm. embracing diversity, how do you measure people and make them accountable for that value is the best way of making them real. Any number of our businesses or client-facing organizations, they'll say profit is important to them. And they will measure that and they will make people accountable for it by measuring at the end of the year, how much profit have you generated this organization? And on a scale of one to four, where four is brilliant, Mm -hmm. one is you've really not done very much. You're given an action plan on on how to improve and to boost your numbers. Living your values should be that for everything. It should be, if one of your values is be more inclusive, well, let's have a look at what your performance has been like all through this year on a scale of one to four, where have you fallen and how do we make you more inclusive? How do we help you be more inclusive of others? So things like that, I think finding ways to make people accountable. How do we capture that? There's lots of different ways. Things like jump level feedback. Feedback is a massive challenge area for lots of organizations in that if you go to people you like for feedback, you will get 
positive feedback. It's not functionally helpful for you as an individual. Yeah. It's all massively skewed. So there are things you can do to measure how inclusive people are by asking the people they wouldn't normally have asked, right? 360 degree feedback. There is there's very different methods you, you can have. The, the tricky bit, I think, is, or one of many tricky bits, is getting the organization bought in enough to want to do this, mm-hmm. um, to put the effort in to say, we're going to help our people because we understand the case for inclusion. We understand that our organizations are nothing if not an aggregation of people. And if people are able to work better, then we will be better as a company that does the level of effort to, to develop that as a competence, inclusion as a competence. How do we live this and how do we measure it? And there are ways it can be done, um, but it just yeah. takes, takes work. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to have a really high level of psychological safety in order to have a useful feedback culture. And that in and of itself is a massive challenge, particularly in organizations that are inherently hierarchical. And I think for a lot of big established organizations that have been around for a long time, unpicking that can be incredibly challenging. I don't ever want to undermine how difficult that is. It is really difficult. There are short-term fixes for that. If you've managed a workshop, you know there are ways of mitigating dominance hierarchies. So yeah, contribute, right? These things are hard at an organizational scale. And you're absolutely right. They, they do take time, mm-hmm. but because something is hard is not a good reason <laughs> to do it. <laughs> Well, yes. And I think also recognizing that this is a real area of expertise. I think something that has really opened my eyes in the last few years is actually recognizing that working on people within an organization can sometimes feel like a really undervalued role. Ultimately, there's incredible people innovation work being done in lots of organizations. And whether that's an internal structure or that's done with partners or a combination of the two, recognizing that it is a really complex discipline that requires expert input, I think is the first really important step because you see so much DEI work being done. As you say, it's an add-on, it's an extra part of somebody's job. Somebody may have all the best intentions, but doesn't have the expertise and often doesn't then have the support that they need to deliver on it. And as a result, it's no surprise that lots of this work then ends up being shoved in a drawer and doesn't get implemented. I've certainly been on the end of that sort of effort as well in the past. And it's really challenging and it's really demoralizing. It is. And I think that's where this is a, it's a multivariate challenge with lots of different things that need to be done to help fix it. But I think that's where the strategic alignment is really important. If your organization gets that this is valuable the ways of motivating the behavior aren't just focused on in-year sales and aren't yeah. just focused on getting bums in seats as quickly as possible but are focused on the, the collective strategic value that comes from this work yeah it becomes easier to motivate the kinds of behaviors you want and, and it becomes organizations to give the budget and the headcount that's yeah. needed properly and part of that as well is about making sure that we don't allow commercial gain to be a well it's okay that they behaved in a bad way or in a not inclusive way because they made loads of profit i couldn't agree more and again that's where it comes back to how do we make our values real if it comes to the end of the year and someone has you know sold a million pounds worth of work but they've been like really uninclusive and marginalizing and they've you know offended people or worse then we should be measuring that person's performance holistically including all of that stuff and that, that person has then not been successful that year. And leaders need to know, right, that actually people are not blind to that behavior. You see somebody get promoted or made a partner or whatever. Somebody who is 
notoriously badly behaved. And it's almost sometimes like leaders think no one's going to notice. And it's a really toxic thing to root out. I would love to commission some work to actually be done to measure the impact of what happens when we reward that sort of behavior, because I genuinely believe it results in attrition and it results in, you know, lack of motivation from junior members of staff. Exactly. It it definitely isn't motivating people to want to work harder. I think a a component part of that study I think really interesting is really drilling down into the root causes of that behavior persisting in organizations. And and I expect it comes down to bad line management, people who can't have difficult conversations. It comes down to behaviors that people see and then expect are expected of them in that culture. And it's, I I tend, I tend to try and assume behavior. It doesn't come from a place of malevolence. Really, you can boil Mm -hmm. it down or just generally speaking, not being assholes. (laughs) It tends to be that they either don't know or that that behavior is being stimulated or facilitated in some way yeah, and and getting to the root cause of why would probably help as well. Exactly. So as we come to the end of the episode, if someone was interested in doing some further reading on what we've talked about today, or if you could give an example of a book or podcast that has changed your perspective, my dog is going ballistic in the background for which I can only apologize. What would it be? So we've talked about, and I know that it's in itself slightly controversial but we've talked about the two different motivating forces behind building buy-in for diversity and inclusion i think yeah. one of them is that is that empathetic case how do we how do we really understand at a human level why this stuff is important and there's one book called the good immigrant which i would recommend it's like an anthology of stories and it speaks to, to my experience as kind of like a, a second generation immigrant but understanding even as an immigrant how other other immigrants have different perspectives and can feel yeah. marginalized in society i think it's, it's a really good one for people just kind of broaden their perspective awareness and from the how is diversity inclusion valuable and, and this touches on social mobility as well mm-hmm. one of my favorite books is rebel ideas by matthew syed yeah or invisible women by whose name escapes me um, caroline criado yeah. perez Yes, both of those are really good books that will speak to the more analytically minded people around why diversity and inclusion is important. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dale. Always a pleasure. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with friends and colleagues, leave us a review and check your subscribe so you don't miss us next week. The Good Work Podcast is brought to you by Good Work, a social impact business on a mission to make early careers fairer, more inclusive and more meaningful. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.